Please open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Again, that's the letter of James chapter 1. Our passage for this morning is James 1, 19 to 21. I've entitled our series in James, Wisdom from Above. Uh, You probably wouldn't know that unless you visit our website. After all, it's the sort of thing that's really only relevant when you're uh, coming up with a graphic for the church's website. I doubt I'd ever spend time thinking of a series title otherwise. Uh, But that's the title of this series, and I call it that. I call it Wisdom from Above because I think that captures the heart of this letter from James. The phrase itself comes, comes from James 3. 13 to 18, where James speaks alternately of the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, and the wisdom that comes down from above, so that which is heavenly, spiritual, and godly. That contrast captures the the letter of James in a nutshell. James is a tale of two different kingdoms, with two different types of orders, two different types of philosophies, two different types of laws, two different types of wisdom. There is the earthly order, that which is from below. Again, this is the the type of thinking that finds its source in evil. It's demonic in nature. It's It's a kind of order that is set in opposition to the rule of God in heaven. And James tells us that it inevitably leads to destruction and death. I mean, that's really the only way that opposition to God can end, with death. And so this so-called wisdom, this earthly way of thinking, it produces bad results. And I don't just mean bad in the sense of evil, morally bad. I mean that it is bad in the sense of undesirable. The results are bad in the sense that they're painful. They're not to be preferred. This is the danger of earthly wisdom, according to James. It promises good, but it brings death. It's a lie. It's deceitful. So there's that system of wisdom, this earthly wisdom, which arises out of the kingdom from below. That's one kingdom, one system of order. And then there's a heavenly order to things, which comes down from above. (coughs) This system of order finds its source in God and His perfect wisdom and knowledge. It's a kind of order that is submitted to the rule and authority of God. And James tells us that this system leads to blessing in life. In other words, it produces good results. And good, once again, in the sense of desirable or pleasing. Again, there's blessing to be found in this system of understanding. We've seen the the contrast of these two different systems as recently as James uh, 1, 13 to 18. James tells us that our desires lead to sin, which produces death, whereas God's will leads to life, which produces righteousness. Again, there are these two completely different outcomes, one favorable and the other unfavorable, and the difference is rooted back in these two different types of desires, one which comes down from God, who is good and who can only desire good things, and the other which comes up from below, from within our own fallen sinful hearts. In this letter, James is urging us to follow after this heavenly order, which is rooted in God's desires, rather than in the wisdom that comes from below. Of course, as you know by now, James is writing this instruction to a group of Christians who appear to be enduring a series of trials. Back in verse 1, we see that James addresses his letter to the twelve tribes and the dispersion. This would thus seem to be a a letter written to believing Jews. And this reference to the dispersion perhaps indicates that these Jews may very well be among those who have been scattered by the early persecutions that we find towards the beginning of Acts. But regardless of whether or not these Jews are suffering from that type of persecution specifically, at the very least we know that they're encountering some type of trial, some type of widespread trial even, since James' very first words in this letter are, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so this is how James has begun his letter. In verses 2 to 18, by instructing his readers regarding how to interpret those trials. In particular, he's shown them that these trials aren't a sign that God's abandoned them. Rather, they're a sign of God's love for them. God means to make them holy through the trials. He means to make them like Christ. He's explained that God can give them the wisdom they need to grow in the trials. The only thing uh, they need to do is to seek it from Him without any doubting meaning there can't be any sort of divided interest where they want to serve God on the one hand and sin on the other. 
How are they going to do that? How are they going to keep their attention, their desires fixed on heavenly things rather than earthly things? James has explained that this will occur as they maintain an eternal perspective on their situation. It says they view their trial not in light of where they are, but in light of where they're going, where they will be, that they'll be able to see their trial in the proper perspective. And so desire holiness more than they desire comfort. Now, in today's passage... James starts to get into the meat of this letter by instructing his readers in the kind of wisdom that God means to teach them through these trials. Again, that's the point of this letter, to exhort his readers to pursue the wisdom that comes from above rather than below. Trials, he said, are instrumental in teaching them that wisdom. So what are the kinds of lessons that they're supposed to learn? What do they need to do to benefit from the trials? That's what James now begins to expound in verses 19 to 21. Let's begin by reading this passage in its context. So starting in verse 19, and then we're actually going to continue through verse 27. Again, verse 27. So James James 1, verses 19 to 27. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Instinct is an incredibly powerful and useful gift from God. And I'm not just talking about the spider's innate knowledge of web design or the migratory patterns of birds. No, I mean the, insect, the instincts that God gave us as humans, they're not only incredibly powerful, but they're very useful. Uh, for example, if you're a mother, uh, you might have wondered why it always seems like either you were or you are Uh, the first to wake up to the sound of your baby when he's crying or he or she's crying in the night? And the answer actually is instinct. No, your husband isn't pretending to be asleep, just hoping you'll go up and take care of the baby. Studies have shown that women are apparently hardwired for that behavior. Their brain picks up that sound in their sleep and it kicks them out of their sleep cycle. Uh, You don't have to think about it. The body just does it for you. That's That's an incredibly useful trait for a woman with a hungry baby to have. In the same way, if there were suddenly a loud boom in the back of this room, most everyone in here would immediately turn and look at it. You wouldn't think about it. You wouldn't say, there wouldn't be this thought process where you go, huh, I wonder what that noise is in the back of the room. I better check it out and then turn your head. You just do it automatically. That's a very useful characteristic to have because sometimes loud noises imply danger. And so it's just built into you. When you hear a sound, you immediately turn to see where it's coming from. So you can size up the situation and react. Of course, sometimes these instincts will even register on an emotional level. Uh, If a large man gets angry at you, for instance, and he starts yelling and screaming and walking towards you in a threatening manner, not only are you going to start to experience certain physiological changes, you know, the eyes will dilate, for instance, the heart will race, adrenaline will start pumping through your body, but you're going to register that entire response as fear. And that's a kind of instinct. You don't necessarily intend to have that response in that situation. It's automatic. The man starts making threats, and whether you like it or not, there your body goes, preparing either to run or to fight. Again, that's a very useful instinct. That flight-or-fight response in the face of a threatening situation, that's something that helps us preserve our life. It's good that our body automatically registers a threat, causes us to fear, and prepares us either to defend ourselves or seek safety. 
the, the problem, though, is that these instincts, which are so often very useful, they'll sometimes kick in when they're not needed. Something will happen, for instance, that's not threatening, but your body still registers it as a threat. And you get this automatic response that's not very useful. It's very unhelpful. You know, a window slams shut and it causes you to jump. Your heart's already racing. And you have this very unpleasant feeling of being afraid when you know there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, I don't, I don't like heights. If you were to walk me out onto the sky bridge over the Grand Canyon... You know, my knees would start to shake. I'd I'd be dizzy. Sweat would be dripping off my body. I'd have this uncontrollable urge to start crawling around on the ground. And you might say to me, well, what's wrong with you? But I'd say to you, what's wrong with you, right? Like you have a piece of glass between your feet and 720 feet of open space. If your body isn't registering that as a dangerous situation, I think it's broken, okay? But of course you'd be right. There's no rational reason to be afraid in that situation. My body is just registering a danger even when there isn't one. This is the problem with instinct. While that automatic response can be very helpful, it's sometimes wrong. And when it's wrong, it's not very useful. And so we sometimes have to train ourselves to ignore these types of automatic responses. I think I might have shared this story before, but my brother Eric, he fought in Afghanistan and Iraq. And uh, after he came back from Afghanistan, I remember him sharing this one story of a time uh, where he and his unit were moving up to a fight. And as they were moving up to this fight, they encountered a reporter who was fleeing from the battle. Uh, He was just chucking his gear left and right, trying to do everything he could to get away from the danger. As Eric told the story, I kind of chuckled. I thought that was a funny kind of a thing. And he explained to me, he said, you know, the thing is, though, he says, I was just as afraid as that guy. He says, the only difference is that I have been trained to walk into the fight. And incidentally, that was where the safer place uh, to be was in this situation, with the American soldiers in battle. The reporter ended up running so hard from the battle and in such terror that he got himself lost. It was a couple of days, actually, before another unit found him. He was alive, thankfully, but his fear caused him to run out of one danger into another. You know, soldiers, again, they have to be trained to quell that instinct so they can run into the battle. That fear instinct, while perhaps accurate, actually, in that situation, again, is not useful. Even though it's right, it isn't useful. If you're going to have real safety, you have to have people who are willing to charge into the fight and kill the bad guys. But one such emotion, one such, and I think you could really call it almost an instinct, is anger. Anger. Someone wrongs us, and our immediate reaction is to get angry. Many times there isn't even time to think. The same physiological reaction is taking place. The heart rate elevates, maybe you feel the blood rush into your face before you even have time to completely process what's happened. Now, contrary to what many people might think, anger isn't always bad. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Psalm 7.11, for instance, says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Or as the King James translates it, God is angry with the wicked every day. Jesus himself, of course, expresses anger at various points in his ministry. He chastises the religious leaders more than once in an apparent expression of anger. When they refuse to tell him whether it's lawful to heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, for instance, Mark says that he, quote, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So Jesus got angry. And yet the scripture says that he's without sin. And so anger isn't always wrong. Hell, for instance, is an expression of divine wrath, but of course, it's a just wrath. It's an anger that's appropriate for the crime. And that's all that anger really is. It's a kind of energy directed at a perceived injustice. If I could put it this way, just as fear is the emotion, fear is the emotion that corresponds to danger, and sadness is the emotion that corresponds to tragedy. And laughter, to humor or fun, so also anger 
is the emotion that corresponds to injustice or unrighteousness. Just as we instinctively laugh at a joke without ever having to tell ourselves to laugh, it's just this immediate response that we have when we perceive something to be funny. So also we will get angry at those things that we perceive to be unjust or unfair. I would argue that it's probably part of the image of God in us. Just as God responds to sin with wrath, so too we are built to have this automatic, visceral response to injustice. So no, it's not always wrong to get angry. In fact, in Ephesians 4, we're commanded even to get angry at times. Ephesians 4, 26-27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, anger isn't always bad. But, that being said, is it always good? And again, I don't just mean that in the sense of, is it always morally right? I mean, is it always useful? In today's passage, James tells us that the answer to that question is no. No, the problem with our anger is that not only is it sinful, but it's also incredibly unwise. Much like our fear, it can be misinformed and misdirected, and when that happens, our anger becomes a terrible mistake. We see this once again in verses 19 to 21, where James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. There are all types of situations in which we tend to get angry. Uh, Perhaps someone cuts us off on the interstate, uh, or perhaps you get angry when the service at your favorite restaurant is particularly slow. Maybe you get angry when your kids disobey and act up. Or when your spouse forgets to take out the trash. And maybe you get angry over politics. Or perhaps even in a theological discussion. When someone denies what you at least perceive to be the plain statements of Scripture. The point is, there's all kinds of situations where we get angry. Bosses and co-workers make us angry. The neighbor who never seems to cut his lawn makes us angry. The stranger who makes the rude remark makes us angry. And then once you get angry, what happens? Usually there's one of two responses. And depending on how a person is wired, they'll generally tend toward either one type of anger or another. Either they'll blow up, right? Meaning they'll yell and scream, or they'll start telling a person off, just just have at them. Maybe they'll start hitting and punching things. It, It might be more dramatic or less dramatic, but either way, there's a visible, tangible expression of their anger. They'll blow up, or they'll clam up. Like they'll just shut down. Rather than making a big display of their anger, they'll hold it all inside and seethe. A lot of times people think these types of people don't struggle with anger, but they do. Actually, just as bad as the blow-up person, they just don't express it as much. Internally, they are yelling and screaming. They're having an argument in their head, right? They're just not letting it show. You can probably already identify which type of anger you you tend toward. No one falls entirely into either of these categories. Blow-up people will clam up under the right circumstances, and clam-up people can blow up. In fact, clam-up people tend to be really be blow-up people with a longer fuse. That's me, typically. I clam-up at first, but the pressure builds and builds, and then eventually, boom, right, blow-up. Ancient Greek, by the way, has a couple of terms that expresses the difference in these types of anger. First, there's the word thumos. Thumos. Thumos is a kind of onomatopoeia, meaning it's a word that sounds like what it's describing. So, you know how bacon sizzles, right, and bees buzz? Well, guess what kind of anger Thumos describes? Thumos, right? It's like when we say kaboom, Thumos. It describes the blow-up anger. The volcano just blows its top, and when it erupts, Thumos. It's similar to what we might call wrath or fury. It's an anger that burns hot, but also usually very quick. 
The second word that we find in the Greek is the word orge. Describing orge, Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says this. It says, Thumos indicates a more agitated condition of the feelings, an outburst of wrath from inward indignation, while orge suggests a more settled or abiding condition of mind, frequently with a view of taking revenge. Orge is less sudden in its rise than thumos, but more lasting in its nature. Thumos expresses more the inward feeling, orge the active emotion. That's a good way of describing that kind of anger, isn't it? An abiding condition of the mind, frequently with a view of taking revenge. That's usually what we're doing when we clam up, right? A person who clams up, they may not yell or scream, but they'll shoot daggers at you with their eyes. And when they do that, you know what they're thinking. They want to blow up, but they're, going to, they're not going to do it outwardly. So they take that all inside and they have a little fantasy in their head of all the things they want to do or say to you. Again, they're plotting their revenge. And I'll just point out, by the way, that this orge anger, that's actually the more dangerous of the two. The, the thumos anger gets all the attention because it's loud and it's obviously out of place. When we talk about this instinctive reaction, that's more typical of the thumos kind of anger. It happens before a person even has a time to think, and that's why it's so short-lived. Once a person has time to actually consider why they're angry, they usually see that they're overreacting and they calm down. The orge type of anger, though, that's, a, that's an unresolved kind of anger. It abides. And the reason why it abides is because that person has had time to think about it, and they've determined that they're right, that they should be angry. And so this type of anger creates a more permanent breach in the relationship. The, the thumos anger, again, it creates an explosion, but at least when it happens, the conflict is very evident, and it's usually addressed and resolved quickly. The problem with orge anger is, number one, it's content with the breach in the relationship, and number two, it doesn't outwardly manifest, manifest itself in such a way that the offending party knows either that they need to, be, to, that they need to correct a wrong or how. Uh, you know how it is, right? Your spouse isn't talking to you at dinner, and so you ask them, you know, what's wrong? Nothing, they say. And they go right back to eating, you know. Are, are you sure? Because you seem mad. I'm not mad. And you know that's not true. They are mad, but they won't tell you, and so there's nothing you can do to fix it. That's the danger of orge anger. When the person gives you the silent treatment, they're murdering you in their soul. They're pretending you don't exist, and they're content to leave you that way. They don't want to fix the relationship. They want it to remain broken. So the two types of anger, I'd say, is of the two types of anger, I'd say this is the potentially more sinful because it's a resolved kind of anger. It's a sinful anger that refuses to see its error and repent. And the reason why I take the time to say all of this is because there are some of you probably sitting here today who think you don't have a problem with anger. And so you don't think that today's passage is really going to have much to say to you. And the reason isn't because you don't have a problem with anger, rather it's because you are actually guilty of the more serious of these two types of anger. It's just that no one ever corrects you for it because it never manifests itself in an obvious way. If I could put it this way, you've become a tremendous hypocrite. You've become an expert at masking your anger. It's not that you've truly overcome your anger. You've just mastered it in the sense that you never let it show. But internally, you seethe. And I want you to know, if if you're realizing that's you, then you especially need to listen to what James has to say here. So then, going back to the things that make us angry. The disobedient kids. The lazy spouse. The unfair boss. The political post on Facebook. Someone does something that you perceive to be wrong, and then what happens next? You get angry. Either you blow up or you clam up. You either speak your mind, you let loose, or you shut down and seethe. Have you ever thought about why you do that? I mean, have you ever considered what your goal is when that happens? Let's take the the classic example, the one I'd imagine we all have experience with in one one form or another, and that's the thumos anger that occurs when a child disobeys a parent. You've probably all been on either the giving or the receiving end of that relationship at some point, right? A child does something wrong, 
and the parent explodes. They raise their voice. They begin to, they begin to run through a list of all the punishments they're going to lay down for that child for what they've done or what they'll, continue, what they'll do if they continue what they're doing. Depending on the age of the child and the maturity of the parent, perhaps they even start to hurl insults, insults at the child. Call them things like spoiled or ungrateful. Toss out words that are meant to wound the heart. So what's the parent trying to do in that situation? What's their thinking there? What's their goal? They're trying to correct the child's behavior, aren't they? Uh, they may not ever admit it, but they think that if they just raise their voice enough, enough, threaten with the right kind of punishments, in short, if they can effectively scare the child, then they can intimidate them into the kind of behavior they want them to perform. In short... And listen closely here. This is key. In short, they think they can correct the wrong. They think they can correct the wrong with that kind of anger. Again, anger is the emotional response to injustice. Rightly exercised, it's an expression of a person's righteousness. They see something wrong and they're immediately motivated to see it made right. That's what's happening with the parent in that scenario. They perceive the child's injustice and they seek to correct it with their anger. This is how all anger works. The actions that follow that emotion reflects a person's innate understanding of how to appropriately correct the situation. Even the person that murders their brother in their heart by giving them the silent treatment, that is their solution to the perceived injustice. They think that the way to fix the problem is to mentally block that person and eliminate them from their life. Like the one who's guilty of a capital offense, they believe the only way to fix the wrong is a kind of death. Just remove that person's presence from the face of the planet, if only if in their own mind. Of course, perhaps their reasoning isn't always quite as drastic as that. Maybe they only mean to use the silent treatment to manipulate the other person, get them to feel guilty, to crave relationship, and then hope that they'll come crawling back on their knees begging for forgiveness. But either way, the point is still the same. They're giving them the silent treatment because they believe that's the most effective means of resolving the injustice. When we look at the book of James, it would appear that that's what James readers are wrestling with as well. Again, they're likely struggling in the face of unjust persecution. Their their Jewish brethren are rejecting them and cutting them off from their community. For many of them, probably even their own families are turning them out. And for no other reason than the fact that they've accepted the obvious testimony to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. I'm sure none of you are familiar with anything like that, right? None of you have ever experienced tension in your family because of your religious beliefs. None of you have ever been mocked, for instance, or treated unfairly because you actually believe and try to do what the Bible says. Well, that's what they're experiencing. And even more than this, they're, they're apparently struggling through the disunity and infighting in the church as it's working its way through these trials. This actually seems to be the greater issue in the church when James writes this letter. Even more than the trials, the real problem these Christians are facing is the fact that the church seems to be failing. The kind of unity that you see early on in the book of Acts when believers are holding everything in common such that there were no poor among them, that isn't happening anymore. The rich are turning away their poor brothers. They're refusing to give them help. And they're doing that all the while church leaders are giving preferential treatment to the rich. The rich are getting extra attention from the church leadership because they're rich. Again, I'm sure you've never faced a situation like that, have you? You've probably never been in a church filled with religious hypocrisy. You've probably never seen politics at work in the church. You've never been in a church where the direction is decided not by the Scriptures and its priorities, but by the desires and priorities of a few key and politically powerful families. I mean, I'm sure you guys have all been in good churches, right? No, of course, you've experienced all these things. I mean, unless you're a babe in Christ, the fact is, we've probably all experienced this. 
Well, how did you feel when you saw these things happen? What was your response? I mean, did it maybe start to make you a little mad? Were you perhaps even outraged by the perversion of Christ's church? If so, good to a certain degree, because that's a sign that you have a spiritual pulse. That's a sign that your injustice detector is turned on. You should be angry when you see these types of things occur in the church. Because as James will explain to us over the next several chapters, they're wrong. They're wrong. The church isn't supposed to function like that. So what did you do when you saw that sort of thing going on? I'll tell you what James readers did. They got mad. From what he writes here, it would seem that they either started to, or at the very least, they were considering going to war with one another. In fact, if James 4, 1-2 is any indication, those fights have already broken out in the church. That's where James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It would seem like the fights have already broken out. These Christians see hypocrisy and bias and selfishness at work in the church. And their response is to get mad. They think that if they, if they yell and scream and shout and threaten and insult and belittle, then they can fix the unrighteousness that's occurring in their churches. And what does James say to this? That's the instinct, right? To not only get angry, but to express their anger. They think that's the way they're going to solve their problems, but what does James say? Verses 19 to 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This phrase, the righteousness of God, I think we're probably inclined to read that in the sense of personal righteousness. Like James is saying, we will never be righteous so long as we practice merely human anger. However, I don't think that's what James is aiming at here. Uh, That would be like James saying, you're never going to be righteous so long as you sin. That's redundant. Righteousness, by its very definition, excludes the possibility of sin. So for James to say, sinful anger will not make you righteous, that seems like kind of a nothing statement. Who would ever think that would be the case? Now, maybe you could try to say that James simply means to identify their responses as sin. So he's pointing out that the anger of man is not the same thing as the righteousness of God. But not only would that be sort of a convoluted way to say that, since it would be much simpler to say simply, the anger of man does not produce the anger of God, rather than to say the righteousness of God. But in addition to that, the problem is this word, produce. That's the Greek word ergodzomai, and in the form it's in here, it means to do, accomplish, or carry out. And thus it would seem that James is, is seeing anger, the anger of man, as an instrument which produces a particular result. I think that's how we have to understand this phrase, the righteousness of God here. Not as a personal characteristic possessed by James readers, but rather as a particular result that his readers are attempting to achieve through their sinful anger. And what's that result? Well, it's the changed circumstances which they hope to achieve through their anger. It's the obedience that the parent hopes to achieve through their bullying and intimidation. It's the change of mind you might hope to achieve when you leave the snide remark on someone's political or theological Facebook post. In this context, it's the unity of the church, which these believers are trying to achieve, oddly enough, through their quarreling. I mean, is a child's, disobedience, or is a child's obedience rather a good thing? Would it be fair to characterize that as something that is right or just? Is it something that God takes pleasure in? Sure, Absolutely. Does God want the church to abide in the truth? Does He desire the world to be ruled by just forms of government? Absolutely. Is the unity of the church right? Of course. But here's the thing. The bullying and the snide remark and the quarreling never produce any of that. And that's what James is saying here. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers. 
This is just like the exhortation we saw back in verse 16, where James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James sees a false system of thinking at work in the church, and he immediately sets about to remove the power of sin's deception. He says, know this. The idea is, don't be fooled. There's a thought process taking place here which isn't true. This isn't wise. And what's that thought process? It's the idea that the anger of man, which is to say sinful anger, and and that's important here. James isn't saying the anger of God here. It's the anger of man that he's referring to here. James has already showed us that that sin, sin is what comes out of man's desires in verses 13 to 15. Righteousness is what comes out of God's in verses 16 to 18. So this isn't righteous anger. This is sinful anger. The, 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 the flawed thought process is to think that that kind of anger can somehow produce a result that's commensurate with God's desires. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so the big idea that James is trying to drive at here is that not only is sinful anger morally wrong, but it's also incredibly foolish. It's incredibly unwise. I mean, you're never going to produce a good result with that kind of anger. And that makes sense. I think when we see the whole thought process and the bare nakedness of what it is, it's fairly obvious that it can never produce what we hope it will produce. I mean, to think that good fruit is going to arise from sinful motives, that's like thinking that you can grow apple trees from kidney beans, right? It's never going to work. You harvest what you sow. Well, in the same way, you can't harvest righteousness by sowing in sin. The seed will bear its fruit. So guess what sinful anger produces? Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Anger begets anger. In other words, it doesn't fix the situation, it just fuels the cycle that causes the conflict to escalate. And again, we know this instinctively. You know how I said we all tend towards either thumos anger or or orge anger? Well, take the worst Thumas guy you know and give him an awful boss who himself loses his temper and treats him unfairly. And you'd be surprised how quickly he he can become an orgay anger kind of a guy. He'll suddenly demonstrate great self-control and gain a remarkable mastery of his tongue in that situation. He'll seethe. And you know why that is? It's because he understands intuitively that blowing up at his boss isn't going to fix the situation. He understands instinctively that it's only going to end up getting him fired. This is what's so interesting. We, we tend to demonstrate a tremendous ability to control when we thumos and when we orge, depending on which type of anger is going to be the most convenient to accomplish our ends. You know, the parent who loses their temper with their child or or with their spouse will suddenly demonstrate tremendous self-control, you know, with the the sinful boss. And And the only difference is that in one instance, they're in the position of power. And so they can bully and intimidate and get their way. And in the other instance, they can't. This is the difference between man's anger and God's. It's like James is going to say in chapter 4, where are the source of the the fights and quarrels among them? He says, verses 2 to 4, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. In other words, much of the time, our anger is driven by covetousness, by idolatry. And when that happens, it's a misinformed anger. Just like I don't have a real reason to be afraid when I'm standing on the sky bridge over the Grand Canyon, so also the things that we tend to perceive as an injustice are not real injustices. The thing that we think is an injustice is that the entire universe isn't cooperating with us in the pursuit of our idols. And so we get angry. That's not how God's anger is motivated. What's interesting about God's anger is how it always seems to be motivated by His love for others. 
Again, you go back to the book of Mark, and the reason why Jesus gets mad at the Pharisees is because of their hardness of heart toward the man with the withered hand. You know, he takes a scourge and he violently drives the vendors out of the temple. Why? Because they've turned his father's house into a robber's den. You know, he'll demonstrate anger in those instances, but then when those same people turn on him and nail him to a cross, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You go back to the Old Testament, and God makes it very clear. He doesn't destroy the wicked because of some innate hatred for them in his heart. In Ezekiel 33, 11, for instance, God says, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God desires that the wicked repent, and so long as their sins are against him, he is able to bear with them with great patience, with the desire that he would rather see them turn and repent and be destroyed, uh, rather than be destroyed. If, if that's the case, then what finally motivates him to act? Very often we see it occur as he's outraged over the pain that the wicked inflict on others. Throughout the prophets, for instance, God condemns Israel for their neglect of the poor. And on various occasions, He explains that He will judge them for their lack of consideration for the poor. I think perhaps Proverbs 22, 22-23 states God's attitude in this regard most succinctly. It says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. You go to the book of Revelation. And the thing that that finally causes God to act and judge the earth, it would seem, is His care for His people. It would seem that the severe persecution of His people is the final straw. Once again, He's able to tolerate sins against Himself to a great degree. But once someone begins to hurt His people, He can tolerate it no more. Love is what motivates His anger. In fact, I think you could perhaps even argue that the anger that God expresses for those sins against Himself is, at least to some degree, an expression of selfless love. God is Trinity, remember. He is one, but He exists as three persons. And so, so there's a sense in which this triune love is going to be expressed in anger at the one who sins against the Godhead. It's like I mentioned a moment ago. Jesus prays for the forgiveness of those who sin against Him, but He's angered at those who turn His Father's house into a robber's den. In the same way, in Psalm 110, the Father declares to the Son, after His ascension, sit at My right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. While the Son expresses grace to those who sin against Him, the Father is angered at those who persecute His Son. And so He determines to destroy them. So I think we can see here there's, there truly is a difference between the anger of God and the anger of man. God's anger is motivated by His love. His wrath is an expression of His righteousness. His indignation against injustice is a demonstration of His extreme selflessness. And this means that when He expresses this anger, it's never detached from His love. And since it is never detached from His love, it can only ever produce good results. Like his anger is motivated by a sincere desire for justice, and so it does actually fix the wrong in question. In other words, it's the anger of man that does not produce the righteousness of God, not the anger of God. The anger of God does produce the righteousness of God. But of course, our anger is not so noble. It's, it's motivated by idolatry and selfishness and pride. Again, we, we still have a sense of justice, but it's been distorted by the sinful desires inside of us such that when we express our anger, it is in itself unjust. So then, the parent who lashes out at their child, they, they think it's going to command their obedience, but what really happens? Go back to when you were a child, right? How did you respond? I'd venture to say that maybe, maybe you were intimidated at first. Uh, perhaps you even sincerely felt the sting of rebuke, thinking that you had indeed sinned. But as you got older and wiser, and as you learned about right and wrong, and so you began to understand the wickedness of your parents' wrath, 
What happened? I'd imagine you probably got angry yourself. Now, no doubt that anger was often motivated by your own idolatry and selfishness, but sometimes that anger was motivated by the fact that you perceived your parents to be unfair. See, this is what happens when you sin, it begets sin. You get sinfully angry, and then what happens is the person you sin against sees your sin, and their anger is aroused by your unrighteousness, and the whole situation escalates. The parent thinks their anger worked because the child's behavior changed. But that's not what happened. They might have changed their child's behavior, but internally that child is seething. They're in a state of orge. And so far from commanding the child's obedience, they've actually only reinforced their rebellion. They just don't know it yet. Sometimes it doesn't come out until years later. That's what actually happens, right? Think about it. Whose mind has ever been changed by a snide remark? You go on Facebook or some other type of social media where people are talking about politics or doctrine, and you see all these snarky, smart-aleck comments being made. I mean, the Internet is just really the worst for this sort of thing. And do you ever see someone say, You know what? You're right. I am an idiot. Thanks for pointing that out. Thanks for helping me see the light. Of course not. That's not what happens. The whole thing just devolves into a juvenile exercise in name-calling. You're dumb. Oh, well, yeah, you're ugly. And that's the sort of thing that you used to do as kids, but adults still do it, just in a more sophisticated sense. And it doesn't solve anything. Because anger only begets more anger in response. And so the error isn't ever fixed. Sin just multiplies. Again, you know, James readers, they're trying to fight for unity in the church. Well, has the church ever been unified by condescending comments made to those who are in error? Or has a dispute between brothers ever been resolved by intimidation and threats? No. Those types of actions only serve to further fracture the church because, once again, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Just as you will never in a million years grow apples from a pile of kidney beans, so also you will try and try in vain to harvest a good and righteous result from an expression of sinful anger. It never solves the situation. It only makes it worse. And in this sense, sinful anger isn't only morally wrong. It's also incredibly unwise. It's unfruitful. It does not work. And that's the point that James is trying to make right here. He senses that his readers are wanting to respond either to the persecution coming in from outside the church or the hypocrisy that's arising from inside of it. They're wanting to respond by lashing out, and he's telling them, slow down. Take a minute before you act that way, because it's not going to produce the result you think it will. It's not going to fix the situation. And of course, this is what you need to realize the next time that you get angry as well. It's not going to achieve what you think it will achieve. It's utterly foolish. So if sinful anger doesn't work, what does? We're going to get into the answer to that question next week. And and just so you know, I've hesitated to split this passage into two weeks. I know we're going pretty slow here in James, much slower actually than I ever anticipated when we started. But the fact is that not only is anger a very prevalent sin, but there is a lot of confusion about the anatomy of anger. And since this is the first time, I think, in about four years directly dealing with this topic, I think it's worthwhile to take a week just to dig into our thought processes and have the foolishness of this sin exposed. Because again, temptation works through deception. Our will is taken captive when we believe that sin is a good idea. And what James shows us here is that it's not. Unfortunately, our anger is is so instinctive that we often just act on it without ever taking the time to consider how foolish it really is and how it will not produce the result we think it will produce. So again, I think it's worthwhile to examine just how foolish this sin is. Next week, we'll dig into how we should respond to injustice. If the anger of man will not produce the righteousness of God, then what will? We'll get into that as we unpack the rest of this passage. In the meantime, I'll just point this out. If you're going to truly resolve injustice, 
then your anger needs to be motivated by the same thing that God's is. And that's by love. The parent has to stop, for instance, I've used this example, the parent has to stop trying to control the child and start trying to help them. The spouse has to stop trying to manipulate their partner into giving them their idols and start trying to serve them. The brother or sister has to stop trying to merely win the theological argument and instead attempt to win the soul. And the reason is because anything short of that, anything short of real love for the other person is going to inevitably express itself in sin. And once the other person smells out that sin and they perceive your selfishness and your idolatry, their anger is going to be aroused by your injustice and the whole situation is going to escalate once again. And so we have to start here with training ourselves how to truly love other people. And we simply cannot fake it. The only way we can harvest righteousness is if we sow in righteousness. It goes back to the desires, back to the motivations. If our motives are evil, then evil will result. But if they're righteous, then righteousness will result. And so what I'd like you to do this week, kind of in preparation for next week's message, is to ask yourself throughout this week, when am I angry? And when you identify those moments, and pay attention, again, don't just look for the Thumas anger, look for the Orge anger, look for when you're you know, arguing with the other person in your head, right? When you identify those moments, ask yourself, how does this anger express my lack of love for the other person? Because next week, as we begin to talk about what does work, I'll start to explain how God is at work through your conflicts to see that selfishness and sin put away. Again, we've talked about this consistently. God uses trials to sanctify us. Those conflicts in and of themselves are something that God is using in your life to sanctify you. So, so you may think to yourself, you know, uh, you may think I'm saying, you know, you need to love the other person before you get into the conflict, but that's not entirely how it works. God is actually sanctifying you many times through the conflict itself. So how does that work and how does that inform us regarding how or, or what we ought to do when we get angry? We'll explore the answer to these kinds of questions next week. Let's pray.